the study. And we're thankful, Lord, for what's contained in here. And as we experience Paul's joy, Lord, at writing this down and sharing this with the world, Lord, we want to share in that joy tonight as well as we get a closer look at ourselves through your eyes. And and pray that, uh, Lord, we would just rejoice in the great God and King that we have in you. We pray all this through your blessed Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. Ah, look at that. <laughs> My wife's reading glasses. Good. Okay. <laughs> All right. Chapter 4. So, in my version of the Bible, chapter 4 immediately follows chapter 3. And we want to look back and just remember where we left off and what was happening. And Paul is talking about this mystery that's now been revealed. And that mystery that's been revealed is what? Gentile inclusion into the faith. And he says, this was spoken about before. And he'll quote Hosea the prophet and so forth. And he could pull up verses from Jeremiah that would tell us the same thing about Gentile inclusion into the faith. And it's not that God's done with Jewish people. It's just that now God has had a plan and a way to try to bring the whole world uh, under his uh, wing, so to speak. And so if you kind of do a, a, a real meta-narrative, like really back up from the painting and try to take in the whole painting at once of the Bible, it could be summed up kind of like this. It's like from Genesis 1 to 5, <coughs> God doesn't have a chosen people or anything. He's dealing with the world population at the time, and that results in a judgment flood. And then as you get through chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, that's the flood story. You get off the boat in 9, start over again. They actually take an inventory of the nations in chapter 10, and you get these 70 nations. So just to throw a little teaser out there, when, we, when I mentioned this like divine council stuff, there's 70, uh, some of the Eucharitic texts and some of the ancient Near Eastern texts of the day list 70 gods over nations. And, they're, and then Genesis 10 is giving us 70 nations that are existing at the time. So just strange coincidence is all I'm saying. Now... Uh, Genesis 11 is the Tower of Babel. So now as God's dealing globally with the people, you get the Tower of Babel and you have global rebellion again. So now they're, they're divided out. Okay, So we've had these two global judgments, a flood and Babel. So now in Genesis 12, God is not going to deal with the whole world. He's actually going to say, I'm calling Abraham out. I'm going to start a nation through Abraham. I'm going to take Abraham and that nation as my own personal inheritance. And it's not that he's forgetting the rest of the world. What he's doing is he's raising up a nation to make that nation holy. So as he tried to make the whole world holy in its constant rebellion, now he's going to make a nation holy, deal with it a little smaller. And through the blessings of God upon an obedient nation and the flourishing of that nation, the other nations will come under God's care except for that nation from Genesis 12 all the way to Malachi at the end is disobedient. God will say, I've reached out my hand all day to a disobedient and a contrary people. So, so that failed. Now, Paul will say in Romans, it's not that the word of God had failed, it's just that the freedom of the people has failed. But in um, the New Testament, what we see is God doing a foolproof plan. Everywhere that Israel failed, Jesus will come and be successful. 
He will follow the law perfectly the, his entire life. He'll fulfill it all. And in his moral perfection of his entire life, God will say now all the laws that couldn't be followed throughout human history, which was showing that they cannot be holy as I am holy and perfect as I am perfect, that they can't uh, uh, achieve the moral perfection that's required to go to heaven, uh, my son will do that. And then I'm only going to ask them that, to have faith in my son, to believe in my son. And if they believe in him, then all of the credit for following the law will go to them through faith. Okay? So not only is Jesus taking your sin upon himself, but he's also allowing his righteousness to be put on you. So that's the uh, kind of the meta-narrative uh, of the Bible. So now what is Paul celebrating here? He's celebrating the fact that as God was trying to win Gentiles over through Jewish holiness, but the Jews failed to be holy, he's still going to include Gentiles in the plan anyways through faith in his son. And so now it's almost like this flip side of through the blessings to the Gentiles, virtually everybody in this room, the Jews are going to go, you have a better relationship with our God than we do. Why? And you go, look at his son, Jesus Christ. Okay? And then that should bring the Jews back in. And as Paul says famously in Romans, eventually all Israel will be saved. Okay? So what do we need to study anything else for? You just got it all, right? All right. So now instead of being way back here, let's zoom in tighter to see uh, Ephesians 4. So, so Paul, as he unpacks that, uh, he'll say now to the end of chapter 3, now to him who is able, you see the ability of God here, he who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. Do you see the shock of that? God can do more than you can imagine through, through doesn't say through his power, it says through, well, it does say his power, but not his power in heaven, his power that he's putting in his people. As you walk out the faith, that's the power that's going to win the world over to Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, we're the average person like me and you. We say amen, we're done, right? That's Paul's halfway point, is amen, right? Now he's going to crank it up again, chapter 4. He says, uh, 1 through 6, he says, I therefore, because of all this good news, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, so in the great news of the last chapter of Gentile inclusion into the body of Christ, Paul here urges the Gentiles to walk worthy of that calling. Now, why is the first thing out of Paul's mouth after celebrating this Gentile occlusion saying to gent a Gentile church, walk worthy of that calling? It's because the other side of that coin is God dealt for centuries with the Jews who always failed to walk worthy of that calling. Okay? So he's saying, listen, you've been given this good news, but you have to understand something. There's a walk that goes with it. There's a walk that goes with this. Okay? So kind of like you guys sitting here now, hearing the word of God, 
that's great, but it really doesn't mean squat if when you get up and walk, your walk doesn't include what you learn. It really doesn't mean anything. Okay? Jesus will say, it's not the hearers of the word who are blessed, but it's the doers of the word that are blessed. Right? So, so you won't know what to do unless you hear, but if you just come in here and don't do, you're not much different than those that never heard. It's the doing that makes all the difference, right? Not because you're saved by works, before anybody emails that, right? It's because works are always a part of the package that goes with being saved by grace through faith alone, okay? In chapter 2, we read this, you're saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, so nobody can boast. But what's the very next verse say? You are Christ's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So if you didn't have to do those good works, you're leaving something God prepared for you right there on the table untouched. He prepared that for you to do these good works. Why? Because he's displaying his power through us. His power through us. <coughs> now, the Jews are now in a season of hardening is what we learn. They're in a season of their hearts being hardened. Now, I don't remember if it was here or somewhere else that I talked about a paper that I wrote on the hardening and some of you emailed me for that paper. Was that here that I mentioned that? Good, okay. So as we consider that the Jews are now in that season of hardening, um, Romans 10.21 is a statement about that hardening where God says, Something that I, I said kind of off the cuff a while ago, and now I realize it's a verse I wanted to use. Uh, Romans 10, 21, God says, All day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So it's not this random hardening. God's just taking people that are going about their business and trying to honor him and everything, and then they just get hardened because God can. It's not what's going on here. God has been stretching out his hands all day long. And that day, all day long, is like Genesis 12 to Malachi. It's all those centuries that he's stretching out his hands to the Jews, sending them prophets after prophet after prophet after prophet. What has Jesus said? You killed all the prophets sent to you. What a mess, right? What a mess. So, um, and this hardening now, you, you see it both in Isaiah's call to ministry when Isaiah says, here am I, Lord, send me. Then God said, go and tell this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. Okay, again, not a random choosing of the Jews to do that. That's after chapter five. That's chapter six of Isaiah. What's chapter five of Isaiah? It's the wonderful parable of the vineyard, of God's vineyard. Um, Isaiah 5.1 says, Let me sing a song to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. In fact, um, 
I hope this is because I looked this up in the Hebrew because I wrote it down next to the word grapes. I don't remember looking it up, but I wrote stink fruit. I think that's like the translation of those wild grapes. It's a stink fruit. So why am I getting stink fruit when I've done everything for this vine? So in other words, God's saying, listen, I've done everything for you, right? I dug the wine press, I've done, and, and the vineyard is Israel. Do we know that? The vineyard's Israel. The vine is Christ. The vineyard's Israel. He gave it the choicest vine. It gave him terrible grapes. So now comes hardening. Okay, because of that result, there's going to be hardening. Now, look at Matthew 13. Matthew 13. Well, if you look at Matthew 12.31, Matthew 12.31 says, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. And then he says, be known by your fruit. And the problem is, is um, then these ask for a sign, and he'll say only wicked generation asks for a sign. And then, and then we get to Jesus breaking out into a parable, the parable of the sower. And that's his first parable. So what do the apostles say? Why are you speaking to us in, in parables? And his answer is, he says, because it's been given to you know, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it's not been given. Who's to them? The ones that accused him of, of operating by the power of Baal instead of the power of God. It's not been given to them to know this, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Uh, he says, for whoever has to him more will be given and he'll have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing they do not see and hearing do they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, hearing you will hear and shall not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. The hearts of this people have grown dull. You see what happened before the hardening? The hearts of this people have grown dull. It's already begun. Their ears are hard of hearing and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their heart and turn so that I should heal them. Okay, so <clears throat> the prophecy of Isaiah is getting fulfilled in the Jews of Jesus's day. It's the hardening. Okay, and the Bible will speak of when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then the veil will be lifted off of their eyes, the Jewish eyes, and it says that veil is only lifted in Christ. Okay, remember what I was talking about in Ephesians, we got to keep in mind this constant reminder of things are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Okay? All right. Now, so he wants us to walk worthy of the calling with which we are called. Why? Because the last group of people that were called did not do that. So in his observation of the Jews not walking worthy of the calling, he's saying, hey, Gentiles, now, don't let go of this thing. Don't let go of this faith. Now, you might be asking yourself, can we ever let go of the faith? And I want to say with all clarity, I don't know. I don't know. Thank you. Okay. Some fences are worth sitting on. Because, you know, I definitely thought one way, but then I read stuff like this from Romans 11. 
you know, Romans 9, 10, and 11 are hotly disputed chapters. But where do we put conclusions to our thoughts? At the end of the thoughts, right? Here's Paul's concluding thoughts on Romans 9 through 11. Hey, Gentiles, in verse 19, he's speaking to the Gentiles in Rome. He says, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. He's saying, this is what you Gentiles will say. Branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief, they were broken off. But you stand by faith. So don't be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, the Jews, he may not spare you either, Gentiles. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God. On those who fell, severity, but towards you, goodness. If you continue in his goodness. You're only going to get the goodness if you continue in his goodness. So that's a holy inspired verse. You got to wrestle with that, right? I don't even know if you have to wrestle with it. It says what it says, right? So we, that's part of our understanding of this whole thing. Now, back to Ephesians 4. So, walk worthy of the calling with you are called with all lowliness and gentleness. So the idea is he's going to give us truths of how to walk out our calling that I believe he's saying, here's why the Jews failed. There was no lowliness and gentleness. There was no long-suffering. There was no bearing with one another in love or endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he's going to remind us now. Listen to, listen, tell me what he's pounding away at here in verses 4, 5, and 6. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. My goodness, okay? How could you be divided? There's only one of all of these things, right? We're a part of all that one. We're a part of all that one. Verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. My goodness, are there a lot of different opinions about what the heck that was all about right there, okay? Lots and lots of opinions. So I will offer you uh, mine on this. There's much speculation over exactly what Paul is describing here, but it seems to me that he's saying that when Jesus ascended on high, this is his ascension, he conquered all that held his people captive, namely sin and or those who had died in the faith under the old covenant and were waiting in Sheol. Sheol is not what we call hell. It's hell for those who died outside of the faith in the old covenant, but it's also Abraham's bosom comforting those awaiting their final destiny in paradise. So what did the thief get promised, right? Paradise. But where did Abraham and those go before that? Uh, Sheol, Sheol just means the place of the dead. And we learn from one of Jesus' parables that there's a comfort place there, Abraham's bosom, and there's a punishment. And that's where the rich man went, right? Again, there's a, Jesus describes a chasm that can't be crossed and, and all of that. And uh, the point of that parable is not really trying to teach you all that stuff, by the way. It's simply trying to teach you that, uh, you know, that, that rich man wanted Lazarus to go and preach to his brothers about the awful place that the rich man was in. And uh, <clears throat> Jesus, through Abraham's voice in the story, uh, says, listen, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not going to believe even if somebody rises from the dead, right? 
That's the power of this, okay? Literally, so remember the, the Matthew 13 thing I said? Uh, it's a wicked and adulterous generation that asks for a sign, right? So this would be a sign, right? If you want a sign of somebody raising from the dead, and I don't think he's talking about, I don't think Jesus mentioned himself rising from the dead. I think he's talking about if Lazarus comes back from the dead and shows up at your house, they still won't believe, okay? Because this was about Lazarus going there, right? So anyways, um, so Paul in verse 9 is going to try to unpack this ascended and leading captivity captive and giving gifts to men. Verse 9, he says, now this he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also first descended to the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So a lot of the scholarly debate about these verses is, where is this lower parts of the earth? It's either Sheol or it's the earth that we're walking. It just depends on what perspective you have from he ascended. Because when he ascended, you got to remember where we're walking is lower. This, this could be called the lower parts of the earth. So then what's leading captivity captive if the earth is what he's talking about? Well, then you could look at the cross that happened on the earth and say, there he led captivity captive. Everything that would cap, uh, capture you, that would hold you captive, he broke those bonds. Okay, He set you free. So you can understand it that way. Or you can understand it from the perspective of he ascended, except for he first descended, because we do have language in 1 Peter and Jude of him going down to the nether regions and preaching to prisoners down there that I believe are the Nephilim from Genesis 6 and other spiritual beings that rebelled against God that are being held in prison down there. And if you want more information on that, you can buy uh, the book First Enoch, I just did. It just showed up at my house yesterday. Beautiful cover. So if you like the artwork, it's a good book for that too. But these are the books that biblical writers kind of expect you to understand. Not only that, but even the Apocrypha. Okay, the Apocrypha, nor 1st Maccabees or 2nd Maccabees, uh, not Maccabees, Enoch. So not 1st or 2nd or 3rd Enoch and nothing of the Apocrypha is holy and inspired and doesn't belong in our Bible. But man is a good secondary information for you understanding this. Why? Because that's what these guys read. That's what they were reading. That this was their worldview. Their worldview was formed through these books. And so they interact with these books with their audience who has interacted with those books as well. So there's, there's understanding that they thought, hey, my first century readers know exactly what I'm talking about, but his 21st century readers really don't. See what I'm saying? Okay, so it's helpful information. It's certainly not stuff to sit down at your desk first thing in the morning with your coffee and do your devotions through. No, it's not that. But it's good supporting material for understanding. All right. Now, what is this, uh, and he gave gifts to men? Well, check this out. And I love how the difference between the New and the Old Testament, how these, how these authors understood that they are in a new covenant. They're in a new uh, dispensation of grace through Christ. Why? Because he's quoting Psalm 68, 18 here. And watch what he does with Psalm 68, 18. He quotes it by saying, when he, Jesus, ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Well, that's not exactly how verse 18 of Psalm 68 reads. 
It says, you have ascended on high, you had led captivity captive. So far, so good. Then it says, you have received gifts among men. Not you gave gifts from, to men, right? So in Psalms, it says, hey, you received gifts from men, and that's probably the offerings and the sacrifices of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it says you gave gifts to men. So what's the sacrifice of the New Testament? It's Jesus. He's not receiving himself, he's giving himself. See the change in language? They would sacrifice to God, and so they're giving gifts to, to God. But now God, now Jesus is received. This says uh, in the New Testament, it says he's giving gifts to men, not receiving gifts from men. And that he would be the sacrifice that he's offering of himself. And Paul acknowledges or recognizes that by simply changing that word. Hey, in the Old Testament, he was receiving, but now because it's Jesus as a sacrifice, he's actually giving these gifts to men. Okay. You look less impressed than I was when I realized that. Okay, anyways. So verse 9 again, now this he ascended. What does it mean that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended uh, far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Now think of this. He's giving himself as a gift to men, correct? Does that put new perspective on this verse that you know so well? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Right? He's giving gifts to men. What is that gift? It's his son, right? He's our gift that we've been given. <laughs> Verse 11. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So now it says, first he gave to the church apostles. <clears throat> These are part of the gifts that he's giving to men. Okay? So what's a gift that he gave to men? He gave them apostles. Now what's an apostle? Apostle is somebody in total authority. They're, 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 under, uh, they're given the power of miracles. You see Peter, Paul, these guys working miracles through the book of Acts. Okay, miracles are the confirmation of the testimony of the one working the miracle. They say they're an apostle from God. Miracles support their claim there, right? So he gave some to be apostles. He gave some to be prophets. Prophets are the first ones to die, aren't they? They're the first to die because they represent God to the people. And that shows you the sinful nature of people, correct? You would think the prophets would be the one that people always want to bless and, and all of that. Why? Oh my gosh, we get to know God's heart, God's mind. We get to know what God is saying to us. He works through you to communicate to us. But when people have the wrong heart and actually hear from God, it makes them literally want to kill the messenger. They literally want to kill the messenger, right? Okay. So the prophets are the first to die. Who else did he give us? It says he gave us evangelists, okay? <laughs> These are mobile gospel givers. These are gospel givers on the loose, right? They're the evangelists, okay? They're here, and then they're there, and then they're somewhere else, and they're moving themselves around as a tabernacle just to provide the word of God to people. They're, they're the, mobile, um, uh, the mobile preachers, you know, the, the mobile gospel givers, and then he gave us pastors and teachers. These are the, 
the permanent gospel givers. These are the ones that plant themselves, right? And from that planted position, they give the gospel. So these are the ones you know where, where to find. And so therefore they can live up to their name pastor, which means shepherd. They can shepherd because they're there, right? Where the evangelists aren't going to be there, but the evangelists are spreading the word around. But the pastor's the one that plants the church, attends the church, leads the church, and can have a flock because the flock knows where their shepherd is, you know, type of thing. And their shepherd can care for them. So he gave us the mobile evangelistic team, and then he gave us the, the permanent structure uh, gospel team um, in addition to that. And then he, he also gives us teachers. Now, the difference between a pastor and a teacher is not much, except for teachers don't get ordained. They, 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 they teach. Well, they, they can get ordained in the form of an elder, actually, because elders have a requirement to have the ability to teach the word of God, right? Now, uh, the Bible says that one of the requirements for an elder is the ability to teach. Now, what some churches do, some denominations do with that, is sadly, they don't find enough men able to teach. So now they say, okay, well, we're going to have teaching elders, and they'll do that. And the elders that can't really teach, they call it shepherding elders, because they should be qualified to actually still, uh, you know, do the counselings, the funerals, the weddings, you know, various things like that. They're just not gifted uh, teacher in the church. But that's a distinction not given to us from Scripture. The, 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 the call of Scripture is that uh, an elder ought to be able to teach. So, and, and the beautiful thing about teaching is this. When you teach, you actually learn the stuff better than if you never teach it. Okay? You guys think I'm here for you. I'm actually here because I get to know this stuff better. Right? This is how I get to absorb it and know it. Right? That's not true. I am here for you, I promise. But it certainly is a great benefit. Um, you know, uh, I can't tell you how grateful I am that um, somehow, some way, uh, my life ended up where uh, four or five times a day, five days a week, I'm teaching the Word of God. Then on Wednesday nights, another time. And then whenever somebody asks me to, to teach on a Sunday, I do it on a Sunday. Then if I get to do a wedding, I get to teach at that wedding, a wedding message. And then even at a memorial service, I get to teach about resurrection and hope and all of that. And um, it, I, 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 if I had to do something different, I think I'd go into severe depression. I really do. I mean, I, I just think it's so humbling and incredible that this is the spot that I landed in, and I don't know how. But anyway, um, very, very grateful. We're glad that you get it. Well, <laughs> thank you. Yes. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Dad. No. <laughs> All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> Very good. Verse 12 says, for why, why did God give us these gifts of, um, these gifts of pro prophets and evangelists and, and pastors and teachers? He did it for the equipping of the saints, okay? Equipping of the saints, get you guys equipped for what? For the work of ministry. Now, what is the work of ministry summed up as? It's the edifying of the body of Christ, Okay? So literally, the world's contact with the body of Christ ought to lead to this word, edification, right? 
People should feel edified by contact with, with you. Okay, it edifies them. Why? Because, listen, if nothing else, I don't care if you have the ability to teach, you don't have the ability to teach. I don't care if you have the gift of evangelism, you don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't care what your gift is or what your gift isn't. Every contact with you as a believer, if nothing else, will result in hope for somebody. It's going to always, no matter what your gift, be hope for somebody. Why? Because there's a lead enemy, a greatest enemy. There's something that cancels out everything. And the book of uh, Ecclesiastes says it very well. Death is the end of everything you ever tried to pursue and accomplish and everything else. Boom, death, it's over. Death makes you no different from the beast, the beasts of the earth. They die and nothing matters for them at that point either. But what's the hope of the Christian? We've seen our founder get up from the grave. It ain't over when death occurs. So that greatest enemy is not even an enemy anymore. It's a non-issue. That's why Jesus can let John the Baptist die in jail and not rescue him. Because he says now he'll be better. He'll be better if I let him die. Okay, so this eternal perspective. To have this eternal perspective. One of the... Uh, for the sake of a better word, I'll call it one of the luckiest uh, statements I ever made that just, it was completely unprepared for. I said it and then I saw incredible fruit come from it was when I was teaching at Coral Springs Christian, 2002, I left for Calvary Christian and I was gone a year or two and Calvary Christian was closed one day when Coral Springs Christian was open. So I thought, let me go visit. Uh, all my teacher friends, and I still had kids I taught that would still be there. So I went on the campus, and one of the teachers said, why don't you come in and teach my Bible class today? You know, it's kids you used to teach. I'd love to see you. So I go in there, and, um, you know, I just had no plans on teaching anything. And they go, teach us something. We want to be taught again, you know, type of thing. I'm like, okay, um, what am I going to say? What am I going to do? And um, I thought, you know what, there's a very good chance this is the last time this group will ever, ever hear from me. So what's, what's something that I'd want to say to people that I'll never see again? And I started, uh, the, these two words came to my mind, that they should be eternal thinkers. Think in terms of eternity all the time, okay? Think in terms of eternity all the time because when we realize death is not the end of us, that we're going to go on forever, that that should play into our decision-making every day, Right? It should play into what career am I going to have and who am I going to marry and, you know, what are these, how am I going to raise my kids? Well, if you only think of this world, you'll come up with different answers than if you're thinking, hey, there's a world after this and there's judgment in between the two of them. And I want that judgment to go very well. In fact, that's how I introduce myself to my students every year. I said, I don't know how many people are looking out for your judgment day, but I promise you this, every day you're in here, I'm going to be looking out for your judgment day. I'm going to be treating you with the full knowledge that you're going to have that judgment day one day, and I want that to go well for you. So if you don't like me today, that day you'll go, hey, he wasn't so bad after all, right? He was trying to get me ready for that day, okay? So I just gave him this eternal thinker thing, and I started writing it on the board, and I wrote the E, and then I wrote the T for eternal, and then I realized the E and the T could stand for eternal thinker, so I left it at that, and then as I started talking, in my mind, I thought I wrote the whole thing out, and so I said, guys, you should be that. And they're like, E.T.? And I went, yeah. And I just played it off like I meant it. So I said, yeah, be an E.T. What's that? It's an eternal thinker. And it became something they remembered. One, because it was so clumsy and it was an accident and everything. But 
when I saw those kids or ever heard from those kids, I'll tell you what, the time I was in the classroom teaching them, they never bring anything up. But that day, be an eternal thinker, they're like, hey, eternal thinker, eternal thinker. That's right. That, that's, <laughs> I'm going to do a confession here. That's why I don't spend all week preparing for messages. Because it all gets changed at the end. I don't know if you ever see me sitting around here before I talk, but if I have a pen in my hand, I'm changing everything. Because when I prepare, quite frankly, it's fleshly. But when I'm reading the text and just going with it and writing it down, it's not the flesh. It's a crazy thing. You know, people say, hey, pastors should spend at least 20 hours preparing messages. Never done that. Never done that. Okay? Why? It doesn't work for me. I end up changing everything. It's like, he's, it's, literally, I feel God saying, that's really sweet. <laughs> but here's what you should be saying. All right? And I'm going to tell you last minute, otherwise you'll take credit for it. Right? Otherwise, you'll take credit for it. So now you think I'm wasting time because I don't know how to finish this because I didn't prepare it, right? <laughs> Come on, ET. <laughs> Come on, ET. <laughs> All right. All right, so these gifts are given to the church for the equipping of God's people for the ministry work. And that pre preparation for ministry work is for the edifying of the body of Christ. Okay, so apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers are to feed the saints. Why? Because you've got to go out and feed the world. Right? Your edification is to result in their edification. Contact with the body of Christ should lead to edification of whoever. It's a design. Okay? Verse 13. Well, how long shall we carry on this dynamic? Verse 13 says, Till we all come to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That's when you can stop. Okay? When, when do we stop edifying everybody we see? Till we all come to the unity of the faith. We're all in agreement about Jesus Christ. And the knowledge of the Son of God. We all know Jesus Christ. To a perfect man. Now he's talking about the man that becomes the body of believers with Christ as the head. Right? We're all hands and eyes and elbows and we all need each other, right? As the body needs all of its parts. So until Christ's body, we attain the full measure of it. The full measure of it. That means when you're talking to an unbeliever, it's like, listen, we're not going to achieve the full measure of the body of Christ until you get there, man. Right? Okay, you're part of this full measure of, of Christ's body. To be a perfect man. The per it'll be perfect when all come to this knowledge of the Son of God. To the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. This is when Peter will say in, in this light, Peter will say, God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Right? There's nobody walking around that it's not God's desire that he, that he knows his son, Jesus Christ. Verse 14. <clears throat> that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning, and cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. Wow, things just went in a different direction. Right? Right? Things just went in a different direction. Now, 
So this is what work looks like when it's left undone or when it's done unfaithfully. Okay? So you're to grow up into this perfect man so that we should no longer be children. The same author of this book wrote 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 13, he's talking about love, 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 love. If you don't have that love, you're nothing. You're absolutely nothing. I don't care you climb mountains. I don't care if you have the faith to move mountains. I don't care about any of that. You do it without love. You're zip. You're nothing, he says. And then he says that he had to grow up. He says, when I was a child, I thought like a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That verse seems to be out of context with all the talk of love. But Paul knows what he's saying. He's saying, how do you get rid of your childness, childishness? How do you get rid of it? You learn to love like this. And then you'll start growing up into the full measure of Christ. Christ loved like that, right? Um, as my good, good friend out there, Keith, likes to say, in 1 Corinthians 13, put God's name in for love, and you'll get a good picture of God. Is that a good hermeneutic to follow? Yes. Why? Because the Bible says God is love. Okay, is is an equal sign. Any math teachers out there? Right, you teach equal sign is the word is, right? Okay, so if God is love, God equals love, then when you see the word love, put God's name in there. Read 1 Corinthians 13. You'll see God never fails, correct? God never fails. Um, 15. But speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head. So there's that picture of the body. Now we're at the head, which is Christ. From whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. This is what work looks like when diligently applied and faithfully carried out. It's the antithesis of verse 14. This I say then, verse 17. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. How did he start this section? Walk worthy of this calling. What's part of walking worthy of the calling? Don't walk like you used to walk. Okay? And like the rest of the people are walking, which is in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their hearts, who, being past feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. Paul's an anthropologist, isn't he? He knows mankind. Now, as he talks about the darkening of understanding, and we've talked about the blindness of eyes and the deafening of ears, and we talk about all that stuff, I'm going to refer to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting at verse 18 here. What's happened? Um, you know, when you have to figure things out, it's like you've got to reach conclusions, especially when it comes about how you're going to live out your life and what decisions are you going to make and, and what's the foundation of understanding that you have that's driving all these decisions, right? Everybody out there making decisions about their life has some sort of foundation they're pulling from. Whether that foundation is self, I just want to serve self, 
whether it's ego, I just want people to think highly of me and respect me, anything that's pointed towards self is going to be included in this darkening of your heart. It's when you've realized light and you've received light that all of a sudden you realize your life is actually about Jesus feeding you so you can feed others. You're supposed to be there that other people go, thank God they were in my life. I'm better because they were in my life. Now, how can you take your mind off of self and onto others? Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I'm being cared for from above. Okay? He's relieving me of my neediness and wantiness. And because I've been relieved of it, now I'm available for you. Right? I'm available now because the Lord is shepherding me. And what is the Christian's availability to others should result in? They're going to the Lord for their shepherding, right? Israel's repeated sin in the Old Testament is when these nations are invading, instead of going, Lord, let's do it, let's fight, we have victory in you, they go to Egypt or Assyria and go, hey, can we hire your army so you can help us defeat them? Okay, so our equivalent of that is when we're depending on people or we're living our lives for ourselves, and, and we're needy and we're wanting because we're not receiving from the Lord. We're trusting in other devices of men, right? And we're trusting in that stuff, even to the point of getting our, our gender identities from these worldly ideologies. That, that's where I know Satan's entered the game, by the way. That's his fingerprints that are unmistakable. You can't point anywhere else, okay? That's his boldness to say, I'm so close to getting you guys that I can do this unabashedly and talk about your glory as male and female. Now it's up to 70, 80 different possibilities. How, how, how blurry can you make God there? Okay. Now, First Corinthians 1.18 says this, For the message of the cross, I, I, this is one of my favorite sections in the New Testament, it says, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Here's why I love that. It's just one cross. Everybody's looking at the same cross, right? And it doesn't matter what your IQ is. You know, the smartest of IQs can look at the cross and go, that's your God hanging na naked, beaten, and bloodied on a cross? How foolish is that? How can you worship a guy that's beaten down and, and going to be dead soon? Okay, how is that your king? Okay, but it's like this room is filled with people that look at that and go, oh my gosh, that is my God. Why do your eyes see something differently? How come your heart receives that differently? How come you feel a love from elsewhere coming to your heart just because there's a naked guy bloody on a cross dying? What do you see that they can't see? Okay. This says, listen, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. You know, I, whenever I, I, I quote this verse, I think of Matthew chapter 2. And the Magi saying to Herod, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? The question is a question of where, right? Where is he? Usually answers to a question of where are some sort of directions, Right? He's going to be over there, and here's how you get there. But there's nothing like that in the text. It's not answered. Where is he that's been born king of the Jews? 
But when you get to Matthew 27, which is actually proportionally related in space, in the space of Matthew's gospel, because chapter 2 is the second chapter, right? Matthew 27 is the second to last chapter, so they're, they're kind of in a parallel position here. Jesus is beaten, bloody, naked, hanging on a cross, and a sign's putting over his head that answers the question. It says, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. You want to know where he is? The Bible waits until he looks least like a king of the Jews to say, there he is, there's your king. Why? Why didn't it say it when he's riding a donkey and all that and everybody's freaking out happy about him? Why doesn't it say it when he's surrounded by people teaching them? Okay, why does it wait until he's beaten and bloodied and near death? And it says, oh, by the way, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Because those of you that have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart that will receive, you'll understand. You'll go, that is my king. I see it. Okay? How could you see that? That's, no king has ever looked like that. It's not what kings look like. Kings order other people to go and look like that. So why is your king not ordering people to die for him? Why is he dying now? It's called love. You want to talk about your earthly kings? Tell me what their love was. Okay? This is, this is a love story. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, isn't it? But to those who are being saved, to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Is there any greater antithesis to foolishness than God's power? That's what the cross does. Doesn't allow for a lot of dwelling in this area, right? Foolishness or power. Not just human power, God's power. It's what the cross is. It's what it does. Verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ. This... this, uh, blindness of the heart stuff that we just read about. You have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. What's this truth? That you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. A deceitful lust, a lust is a, is a temptation, a draw towards sin, correct? That's a lust. A deceitful lust has a bigger scheme in mind. It's not just to get you to sin, but it's to get you to sin so often that sin is now your master, not God. Right? It's a deceitful lust. It's lying to you from the very first time that you give into that temptation and every time afterwards you're being lied to, lied to, lied to because somewhere along the line you thought it was a good idea. And why? Because you believed a lie. It's just a lie. It's not good for you. It's never good for you, and it's not okay only once, and it's not okay if it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's never, ever, ever okay. It's just not. Your aim, remember we talked about aim, what are you aiming for? Your aim is holiness, okay? Sin is aiming and then going like this. It's sin. You're missing the target. That didn't work out well because I ended up pointing right at the cross. (laughs) All right, so 
Anybody know where I am? 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind that you put on the new man which is created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. See, old man to new man is not just your bad self to your good self. You must go from your good self to your better self until Christ glorifies you into your best self. I thought that might not have came out as good as it looks on my paper here, but let me try it again. Going from old man to new man is not just going from your bad self to your good self, because now you need to go from your good self to your better self, that's sanctification, until Christ glorifies you when you'll become your best self forever and ever and ever. It had more rhythm when I wrote it, but good. All right. Now, So this going from good self to better self until Christ completes the good work that he started in you, right? Philippians 1.6, he'll be faithful to complete that good work that he started in you. Now, with that, we need, it's calling us to wisdom. It's calling us to wisdom and away from a foolishness. And when we think of wisdom, we, we, we think of Solomon, right? We read Proverbs, we read the wisdom of Solomon. But what you have to wrestle with is Jesus Christ comes along and says, hey, one greater than Solomon is here. So now what do we do with that? What is this wisdom of Jesus that is greater than the wisdom of Solomon? How do we understand that? Well, if we examine Proverbs, we see themes throughout Proverbs. And the first theme you come across is the theme of Solomon speaking to his son. And he's saying that you must be able to discern the heart of an adulterous woman. Because she will lure you into her bed, and her bed will lead you to your grave. Okay? You must be able to discern that heart. Because on the outside, it's going to look like a good idea. Okay? But the sin involved with it will destroy you. Okay? So you've got to discern the heart of the adulterous woman. And then his advice to his son when he encounters the adulterous woman is you have to flee her. Okay? I think you all know how hard it would be to commit adultery while you're running, right? <laughs> so if you're running, you're probably not going to commit adultery, right? Now, the very last proverb is not about an adulterous woman. It's about what kind of a woman? It's a virtuous woman, okay? So the idea is the, the man with the wise heart and mind will be able to know the heart of the adulterous woman and flee her and find the virtuous woman and marry her. That's kind of a macrocosm of the wisdom of Solomon. And the very first thing that happens to Solomon after God gives him wisdom is he's presented with two women. And they're adulterous at heart, right? They're harlots, okay? And in the course of events of a night, one of the infants of one of the women dies while the other one doesn't, and the mother of the dead one switches infants in the night, right? But of course, the mother, true mother wakes up and knows the dead one's not hers, and they fight over whose is the live one. They bring it to Solomon for DNA testing, right? Okay? Solomon has no earthly way of possibly knowing whose baby this is, right? So he calls for a sword and threatens to divide the kid in two. Having no intention of harming that child, but he knows darn well with that threat, 
he'll be able to discern the heart of the true mother. And when the true mother acts like a true mother under that threat, even though she offers the other woman to have the baby, Solomon knows that's what a true mother would do and offers that child to the true mother and all of Israel praises his wisdom, correct? So it's his ability to discern between two women. It's typically the adulterous and the virtuous. But Jesus says there's greater wisdom than that. And it's seen when he has an adulterous woman thrown at his feet. If he just did his devotions and Proverbs, he would, he would run, right? He's supposed to run right now, correct? But he doesn't run. Instead, he ministers to her. And he, he shows, first of all, that when you have unrepentant sin, unforgiven sin, you stand in no position to point out anybody else's sin, period. Okay? You are without sin, cast the first stone. And they all realize that and get convicted and they drop their stones and they walk away. And that woman was never in greater danger than when she was alone with Jesus because she was just told the standard for her death. And the standard is there has to be somebody without sin that can rightfully carry out the law of Moses on her and stone her to death. And Jesus stands above her with no sin. The question is, what does the one who can rightfully carry out the law and execute this woman do? And he says, neither do I accuse you Go and sin no more. Do you see the greater wisdom? The idea is she's not going to be an adulterous woman anymore, correct? So what's a greater wisdom than Solomon of discerning the adulterous woman's heart and fleeing her and marrying the virtuous woman? The greater wisdom is taking the adulterous woman and transforming her into the virtuous woman. Isn't that a greater wisdom? Okay. Now listen, that's the Christianity that has the power of God in you to transform people, okay? To transform people. Listen to how Paul puts it here. 25, therefore putting away lying, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. You see the opposite there? Hey, liars, speak the truth, for we are members of one another. Be angry, but do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. This is my favorite one, 28. Let him, who st let him who stole steal no longer. You go, well, there's great advice, right? He's, what does he say to thieves? Stop! <laughs> it's like, wow, you're so wise. Well, listen, we have jails for that, right? Thief goes to jail, hey, stop stealing. Is there any transformation in that man? So what does Paul go on to say? Steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give who him, to him who has a need. He says, hey, thief, guess what? Meet Jesus. You know why? Because then you're going to be an almsgiver. Isn't that the opposite of the thief? Don't steal to make people suffer for your own benefit. Instead, take your own benefit and ease other people's suffering with what, with what you have. And how do you get what you have? Labor with your hands so that it's an authentic offering. It costs you something, Right? If your Christianity doesn't cost you something, listen, everything that you have that you value costs you something. The more that you value it, probably the more that it costs you. Let your Christianity be so valuable that it costs you something. Let it cost you public disgrace if it has to. Okay? Let it cost you friends that bring you down because you're a Christian. You'll find others right here in this room, I guarantee you. Okay? You will own your Christianity if you live it in a way that it costs you something because that's how you become the owner of something.
29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Listen, listen to the ramifications of this. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Why? Corrupt words lead to corrupt relationships, correct? But rather, what is good for necessary edification. You hear that word again? Hey, listen, God gave us prophets, evangelists, apostles, pastors, and teachers. Why? For, so everybody can get edified. They'll edify the body, and the body will edify the world. So let's edify, edify. He says, listen to this. Here's how you'll undo the whole process. Have some corrupt words come out of your mouth. And you'll start breaking and corroding the edification that, that preceded that. You'll be the destroyer of the work of God. Why? Because corrupt things keep coming out of your mouth. If you think that's an exaggeration, read the book of James. You'll say your tongue is an evil. Your tongue is a fire. It's a spark that'll set a whole forest on fire, right? It says, you who praise God with the same tongue, curse man. James, who's like the roughest of the writers, I don't think he's rough enough on this one. He just says, hey, it shouldn't be so. I think he should say, you're a stink. But he says, hey, that shouldn't be so, right? Okay. Now, you see all these opposites? Here's who you were, here's who you should be. It's total transformation, total transformation. I'm going to give you a fancy word you can use at parties so you, everybody thinks you're smart. You ready? It's called entheodramia. If you're taking notes, spell it just like it sounds. Okay? Entheodramia. What is that? It's the conversion of something to its opposite. When something converts to its opposite, that's the process of entheodramia. Paul is saying the Christian faith is entheodramia. It converts people to their opposites. Paul says, I was the chief of sinners. Now he's like trying to say, listen, I actually think I'm the greatest apostle now because I'm trying to be humble and God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me from bragging, but let's compare my ministry to all their ministries. I'm in jail way more time. Imagine that this was your bar for success. I'm in jail more than you. Okay? I'm beaten up more than you, okay? So I'm doing my job better than you, right? Okay. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Never call the Holy Spirit an it or think he's impersonal. He speaks to, to the eunuch. He's grieved by our sin. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Now listen, we did men's ministry Q&A last night with, uh, about marriage and things like this. And of course, there's issues of forgiveness and all this. And here's the paradigm for it. Forgiving one another, even as God and Christ forgave you. Is there any conditions upon that forgiveness? Is there any limitations to what he's willing to forgive? He's saying, listen, be that type of forgiver. <gasps> but you don't know what I've been through. <laughs> don't you think Jesus could say to you, do you know what I've been through to forgive you? Okay? So unless you've been whipped and beaten and hung on a cross to be killed, you haven't been through what he's been through to forgive you. So we've got to be willing to forgive each other. Now I know that this could be a real jab at some of your hearts. Well, if you don't want your heart to hurt about it, I promise you forgiveness is the only way to get to that healing. I have never, ever, ever had anybody in front of me that says, I still haven't forgiven that person, but I feel so free. They don't go together. Unforgiveness and freedom in your heart are, are not going to go together. 
When you become free, you'll find that you forgave. And your power to forgive is not in the bigness of your heart. It's simply in the realization of how much you've been forgiven. If you have a billion dollars dropped at your doorstep and somebody asked you for 20 bucks, how ridiculous if you don't give it to them, right? You've had more than a billion dollars dropped at your doorstep with salvation because you've been forgiven. 10,000 talents of sin, Jesus tells in a parable. That's 10,000 years salary. And he's not trying to say that's how much sin you've been forgiven. He's trying to say you've been endlessly forgiven. There's no limit to your forgiveness. So can you be forgiven towards others? Doesn't mean the one you forgive that you have to go back to the same relationship you had with them before. That's not part of the forgiveness package. There's always going to be consequences for sin. If that consequence is you, you have to never see that person again, that's fine. But forgiveness is still part of the package, and you're going to be a huge beneficiary from that, that forgiveness. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word again, Lord. These are things that I don't know if anybody else could ever think of, Lord, unless you've inspired your apostles to give this to us. And we thank you that we heard from you tonight, Lord. We thank you that we have this glorious word of God, Lord, to know just how loved we are. Just how much wisdom you have, Lord, that you even impart in us, that if we have the spirit of God in us, we can know the mind of God, Lord. How glorious is that? And so, Lord, we pray that the hearing part, as it ends now, the doing part would be richer and more edifying than ever before because, Lord, you deserve our very best. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.